Welcome to From No to Nothing Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Kent Weishaus, an author, professor, and licensed clinical social worker who worked for 25 years in television production. Today, I'll interview Kent about his background, his new book, Stop Breaking Down, The Secret to Avoiding Overwhelming Crack-Up, his systems-based psychological theory, and hopefully we'll have time for a discussion on how these topics holistically integrate philosophically. All right, Kent, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for being on. What would you like to tell the listeners about yourself? Wow. Well, uh, Joel, thank you for having me on. Uh, I have had a varied career. Um, I, for the last uh, 15 or so years, I've been a licensed clinical social worker in uh largely in private practice more recently, and before that working in psychiatric hospitals and community clinics. Um, and before that, I had a 25-year career in television production. Um, and I sort of came to my senses in the early 2000s and uh, switched to a helping profession. Um, currently, I have a book out, as you said, Stop Breaking Down, The Secret to Avoiding Overwhelming Crack-Up, which can be found through my web website, kentw.net. And um, yeah, that's uh, kind of a broad stroke that uh, leads to, to answer your question. All right. Okay. It's a good place to start. So, um, you know, I think that a lot of people right off the bat, you know, they hear, um, we have a lot of people on who have worked in um, psychology or uh, have done social work who have been authors, but I think you might be the first one on who's worked in television. And I think a lot of people have get real starry eyed about that. So I'd just like to start out by asking, what did you learn in your time in television and why did you decide to leave it? Well, you know, you use the term starry eyed. That's really good because that's how it was for me when I first uh, got in to the business, uh, which was in the late 70s not to give away my age, but, um, <laughs> so, uh, and it was starry. And, you know, I'd walk onto a sound stage and go, Oh man, I've arrived. I am now working in this business. And, uh, it's hard to describe this feeling of everything is a set and it's overly air conditioned and it's hushed, um, unless, you know, something's happening. So, um, and so for over time, starry eyed, yeah, I, I was working and I did a lot of different things. Um, I was an associate producer, a line producer, producer, director, associate director, stage manager, promo producer, writer. Um, I, um, uh, I did a lot of things across the 25 years and, um, and so, as I worked on various shows into the 1990s, um, I, it became increasingly apparent to me that the kinds of shows I had chosen to work on um, were causing more harm than good. <laughs> and uh, I had to get out and start doing something which I considered pro-social. Uh, as opposed to, to some degree, antisocial, which is what I think some of the tabloid shows, shows I was working on um, amounted to. Um, so there you go. Yeah, that's, um, that's a really interesting thing that you say there. Um, and I think that a lot of people sort of have that intuitive sense, um, you know, of, of some television and some social media and that sort of stuff that 
uh, maybe it's doing a little bit more harm than good. And, you know, I know that it's all, it, you know, it's all technology is a tool, right? And tools can be used for good and, and for bad. What, what about, um, what about the television industry from what you saw was, was having a negative effect on, on either you or society as a whole? Well, part of it was my own choices. Um, you know, I, I look back, uh, and, you know, as Eric Erickson might say, I'm doing a little bit of a life review. There were some key points of choices that I made that I now regret, but at the same time, had I not made them, I wouldn't have gone into a much more satisfying industry. So, uh, or business, um, I, I worked on shows which were benign and entertaining, uh, initially, um, I don't think they were creating too much false or distorted imagery, maybe some, but, but then the low hanging fruit to me became, uh, as I said, tabloid television, which, you know, in the late 1990s was just sort of coming into its own. Um, now that model has been adopted by news outlets everywhere. And, and so the kind of sensationalist stuff I was working on then seems to be the norm now. And it's like, oh, man. Uh, so I, I regret being part of that. I regret not making other choices and aiming higher. Um, some of the shows that I did, uh, I think, were actually uh, did more good than harm. Um, uh, I, I worked on the Arsenio Hall show for six years. Um, and that show, um, by and large, you know, the first African-American man to have a late night talk show, uh, was quite celebrated at the time. And, uh, I was happy to have worked on that. There were a few things that happened on that show on the air that, uh, people took issue with, but regardless, I think it was a big step forward. And unfortunately now many people don't even remember Arsenio that much, but he was quite good in his own day. Hmm. All right. Yeah. So, um, and this is all stuff that is going to play into the conversation as we go along. So how did you start developing your theory of system-based psychology? <laughs> well, systems thinking, systems work is, as you know, I'm sure, uh, part of, uh, the education that you get is either a psychologist, a social worker, a marriage and family therapist, or a counselor, um, that systems are to be considered uh, all around us as well as within us. And, um, and I, this stimulated me quite a bit when, when I, when I first started grad school, I thought, oh, this is a different way of, of seeing the world, a much more valuable way. And, um, at the same time, I came to see in the last few years that it almost doesn't go far enough. Um, because we're embedded in the systems. We are embedded in them and they influence our thinking all the time. It's like an umbrella. That's just, uh, uh, this is a poor metaphor, but an umbrella that's raining stuff down on us all the time and always influencing our thinking and to, to work to step away from those systems, to step back from them, even though you're embedded in them, 
is hard to do. It takes a lot of cognitive energy. Um, and that's part of what I'm trying to get people to do with, with my book. Um, the, one of the main things that hit me in, in my research, um, I, I started reading, um, stuff by a guy named Endel Tolving, a Canadian professor who, uh, talked about what he defines as autonoetic consciousness um, and noetic consciousness being theorized, being the consciousness in mammals and, and birds um, and uh, autonoetic consciousness, self-aware, abstract thinking, being able to think about the future, predicting the future, uh, worrying about the future, or ruminating about the past, that seems to be m more peculiar to humans. Now, it may be on a continuum. You may say, oh, no, no, my, my dog or cat, you know, has self-awareness. I would question that to a large degree, but I don't know. I, I, I can't get inside their skin to say for sure one way or another. But it seems from their behaviors and from our behaviors that we're far more concerned with our our self-awareness, what I call in my book, I, me, mind consciousness, um, is both a blessing and a curse because as a, we're able to, from a survival standpoint, it's been uh, something that we are able to plan for the future. We are able to collaborate among ourselves and, and create great inventions and for better or worse, take over the world. Um, uh, from the curse part of it, we are also stuck with ruminating about things and telling ourselves stories over and over and over. And as we tell these stories, they be uh, repeatedly, they increasingly feel like they're granite hard truths when in fact they're just stories we're telling ourselves. And so this is part of the systems uh, based uh, situation I was talking about. Um, the systems within us, our cognitive systems, result in our consciousness. Um, what Daniel Siegel would say uh, is a, an integration of, of the systems within us result in our self-aware consciousness and and there's a big flap and uproar about mental health crises in america and the world currently and it seems to me at the core of it is our peculiar i me mind consciousness um if you have looked at the works of Peter Levine at all, or um, maybe Bessel van der Kolk or other, even Dan Siegel, other one, others like them, um, you know that they observe ma mammals as being able to shake off uh, stresses, traumas, uh, life-threatening events, shake them off and, and just go on to the next moment in their life, perhaps with a schema uh, stamped on their brain of, you know, avoid that watering hole danger there. But it's, it's not a rumination of I was almost killed. I need to think about how I was almost killed over and over and over. Um, it's, it's, it's just, it's a stamp of, uh, danger there. Nurturance is someplace else. <laughs> and yeah. so, and so, uh, 
So, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So you said a lot there, and, and a lot of it will really resonate with a lot of our listeners because you know, as a philosophy show, um, you know, we're always thinking about, um, you know, like you said, the embeddedness of our subjective viewpoint within uh, reality, and how do we determine what reality is when we can only see it from our viewpoint? And um, you know, with systems, you know, looking at systems and and trying, to, we need systems in order to describe reality. But systems also have an inherent limitation in in how we choose to um, describe things. And one of one of my favorite examples to use on the show is animal models, right? Because it had, in some ways, by looking at at animals, it helps us to understand the limitations of our own views in some way. And I think what you were just saying, um, I had uh, an encounter like this at at work um, yesterday. I was looking out the window, and we're I'm in Western New York. So, you know, we're, we're near Buffalo where you get six feet of snow in a day. So this time of year, it's already pretty cold. You know, you're looking at the mid forties and I look outside and there's these little songbirds, um, taking a bath in a puddle, you know, just throwing the water all over themselves and stuff. And I, you know, you think even, even outside of danger, life and death, food and mating and, and those, those really big, important highlights right down to discomfort, humans have these things, right? Because as a human, you go, man, I would knock into the water just because it would be cold, right? It would bother me. And I, I was talking to another guy the other day who was um, reflecting on how, you know, COVID was so terrible because he had, you know, we had to wear masks and it was irritating, right? And I go, well, you know, the easiest way to get over those things is is trying to give them some perspective, right? You go, well, is a mask irritating? Yes. But when I compare it to other points in my life where I've endured great pain or misery or danger, these sorts of things, all of a sudden it doesn't seem so bad. You know, same thing with the cold, right? I'm looking outside at the birds going, oh man, that looks really cold. But when I was in the army, you know, there was one time when I was in uh, Wisconsin in February and it was <laughs> negative 20 and I was riding in the back of an open truck at 40 miles an hour. And, uh, you know, I, my hands froze all the way up to my elbow. I couldn't move my fingers or anything. And uh, you go, well, I've dealt with greater cold than this, right? And I think that that's something that we miss in modernity is um, I think when we separate ourselves from our sensations and and the fact that we are animals, right? And, yeah. and some of those discomforts and we go, oh, well, you know, any little thing throws us out of equilibrium. Um, but if you have some experiences to reflect on where you go, oh, well, this was actually much harder or there's other people in the world who are going through much greater things. Sometimes just that perspective is enough to ease some of the psychological problems that we we make up for ourselves in some ways. But. Right. Well, that that you made several good points there. You know, the, the water is cold. I would never get into that. That's a story you're telling yourself. Okay, and it and the more you it bounces around your head, the truer it's going to feel. It's too cold. I'd never get in there. It's too cold. I'd never get in there. Um, and then, in fact, I don't know if you, well, you said you froze your arms up to your elbows. I mean, you jump into a high Sierra's lake uh, in the springtime. It'll be bracing, but you're going to survive. You're going to get out of it, and you'll, you'll surround yourself with a whole new system. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that will give you a different perspective. Um, and so... So, yeah, and, and then there is uh, you know, sort of degrees of things. Like you said, yeah, wearing a mask is irritating. 
Is it as irritating as having your hands frozen for several hours up to your elbows? I, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's so funny. I'm, I'm now remembering a quote. Uh, uh, this is a little bit off base, but on, on the old uh, Arsenio show, Alan Rickman, the actor Alan Rickman had come on to, uh, to promote something. And Arsenio said to him very seriously, uh, was it was it hard doing this role in this film for you? And he said, "Was it hard? Well, compared to what? Compared to coal mining? No, I shouldn't think so." <laughs> <laughs> and that's it's exactly like, yeah, right. that's exactly it, right? It's just all, lots of times all it takes to pull yourself out of some psychological problems is a shift in perspective. But right. so Deliber deliberately trying to tell yourself a different story. Um, yeah. And, and this can come down to everyday moments. You know, uh, if, if I have a challenging client awaiting me and I'm driving to the office when I used to have an office um, <laughs> and, and I'm feeling fear or dread about this client, if I tell myself, you're going to be fine, you know what you're doing. You're going to be fine. You're going to you're going to make your way through this, and it's all kind of kind of come out fine. As opposed to, oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. What do I have to do? Deliberately change the story you're telling yourself, even if you don't believe it. Change it. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I. It's funny because I was just mentioning. I think it was the podcast last week. I was mentioning I'll do that same thing at work. If I if I'm driving into work and I'm thinking about all the terrible things that are going to happen, I have a bad day. But if I go, if I think of all the terrible things as just you know, fun challenges that are, I'm going to use problem solving to overcome, right? Because you want to know what? Every day I've gone to work, I've come back. I've, I've been alive. I've continued to have a job. So it's all turned out fine to this point. So there's no reason to think that something catastrophically different would happen. You know, I've been doing it for several years. I've got the lay of the land on what to do. So yeah, sometimes those, those sort of negative thoughts will get in our head and, and sort of uh, get us into a bad spot. So why don't you give us an overview of your theory? Like you said, there's there's a, a lot of systems-based thinking in psychology already. What what separates your theory or, or adds to the, the existing um, body of work? I was trying to figure out what, you know, the, the, the old 1950s, 60s terms, what is the cause of our neurosis? You know, why are increasing numbers of us having what we call mental health problems, um, depression, anxiety, psychosis, um, obsessive compulsive, uh, you know, these things, uh, ADHD, we see these things running rampant and increasing. What is that about? I asked myself. Um, I, I know how to work with it. I know the treatments I've been trained to to intervene, and, and a lot of them are effective. With most people, I'm happy to keep participating in them and doing them. But what's why is this happening? And again, it is because of self-aware, abstract thinking consciousness. That that's to me, it seems like that's. I guess may, maybe it's just a lead pipe cinch. Maybe it's re a redundant thing to say, but I don't think we think about that. In our trainings, you know, when we go to grad school and 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 get trained as as therapists or interventionists of some sort, we're not trained about what is the what's behind all this. You know, we can talk about traumas 
and how they affect people. You know, the original PTSD diagnosis coming from, you know, uh, shell shock and, and, uh, what did they call it? A war neurosis, I think, originally. Um, uh, and, and this developed into the whole field of trauma studies. Um, why is it that we are so much more affected by this stuff than the animals around? Animals get into awful, horrible fights with each other, right? And, and, and if they survive, they don't hold on to it nearly as much as we do. And I'm not saying we should stop holding holding on to it. I'm just trying to understand why, you know. Mm. Uh, and so that 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 is um, largely what I was aiming for. And this was at the beginning of the of the pandemic. I was trying to make some sense out of things as as uh, we became more and more polarized, and I was hearing more and more uh, things that, to me, just. Uh, uh, I couldn't understand how people were embracing certain points of view, and I was trying to understand why they were. So um, one thing that you mentioned before that I just want to go back on and touch on, you, you were saying uh, that uh, animals um, experience things like the birds in the cold pond and so on. Um, one of the things... The, the, the big movement towards uh, uh, meditation and, um, you know, sitting with your, your own thoughts or, or sitting with your own sensations, um, it became, I, I began to realize that this is a way that maybe maybe mammals below us in the evolutionary chain have quite a bit to teach us. This is a way of becoming, of, of shedding some autonoetic properties, just for moments. In other words, um, uh, the idea of a meditation that is specifically focused on the senses, um, and you put cognitive energy into that, um, Thoughts try and intrude. That's their job. Uh, I have this technique where I'll try and visualize the thought as like a tube coming out of my head. Oh, there's that thought. Automatically gives me distance from it. Okay. And, and so uh, different techniques I've used with, with different clients, like some people like to use a, a bubble uh, that they'll put, that they'll see the thoughts floating around in. Um, but uh, the idea of getting getting distance from your thoughts on the one hand on the other being with just in the moment what what do you what's the tactile sensation you feel right now uh what are you hearing right now what are you smelling right now it's difficult to stay with these for more than an instant but if you, it's a practice that if you can even just for a few instances stay with these things I theorize this is what a mammal's life, you know, is like, that I smell, I hear, I see, and then perhaps the most important thoughts are um, opportunity here, danger here, um, 
and it's not it's not so much a rumination it's just a being with right uh being with right now and so the practice of that i think can help us uh maybe gain some of the leg up that mammals have on us and just in terms of quote unquote neuroses <laughs> yeah yeah again you said a lot of interesting things there and a lot of things that we're talking about in the course of the regular podcast so this will be kind of like a fun um sort of teaser for the the uh the listeners because we're looking at um uh the french uh renaissance philosophers montaigne and pascal and how montaigne you know really said you need to live in the moment and sort of you know look at momentary pleasures and, and pascal was more about no but you know thinking about the hard questions and the deep questions in life is what makes us human and then on top of that in my my own personal life i've been reading through the the Tao Te ching um as well as you know some some buddhist zen philosophies and things and it's it's very similar. It's much like you were saying, where a lot of those philosophies are focused around this idea of living in this moment um, and sort of emptying your mind. And it's not it's not that intellectualism is is necessarily wrong or evil or or anything like that. But it's just the fact that in many cases, um, you know, if you're not doing advanced planning, right, if you're looking at strategic issues, then intellectualism is good. But if you're looking at tactical issues, what you're doing in the moment, lots of times it's better to trust the physical and ment mental faculties that you have, right? Like an athlete, you know, they talk about the more an athlete thinks about, you know, hitting a baseball or throwing a football, the worse they're going to do, right? Yes. The practice, yes. the repetition builds it into the the mind-muscle connection. Muscle memory, and, right. Right, right. And so, yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting aspects to what you're saying that that we've we've sort of been looking at and that are echoed in um definitely some Eastern philosophies and religions throughout time, right. less so, you know, um, on the Western side, but so, right. but so you know, and th th they're both valuable. I mean, these are two broad systems that make us up as humans. Number one, we were, we have evolved from mammals. So we do have a capability of experiencing, you know, mammalian sensations in the moment. But our thoughts hijack us. Our thoughts say, oh, think about what you're going to have for dinner. Do you have enough gas in the car? What happens if so-and-so comes to visit, you know? Um, and so the thoughts are valuable. They're doing their job. But sometimes the practice of just being here and now with reducing the thoughts can help us um, restore a certain balance that that may be lost with a with a ruminate ruminating uh stance which many of us have or probably all of us have from time to time at least yeah and i think that sort of the two things we've been talking about so far might lead to something that you just mentioned you know you're talking about how some of the impetus for what you've been thinking about came from during the pandemic and the increasing polarization that's happening. And, um, you know, I think that from what I've sort of seen, it has to do with a couple of those things we just mentioned. One is the perspective, right? Um, trying to view things from others' points of view seems to be lacking. And the other one, I think, is that rumination factor where people 
get their thoughts, they tell themselves their stories, and then they continue to let those thoughts and stories um, sort of develop uninterrupted by outside perspectives. Do you think that that's kind of an ac- accurate characterization of it? or Well, the, the book, my book talks a bit about this, that in the first decades of the 21st century, we are embedded in systems that includes on, kind of an onslaught of social media, regular media, TV, uh, and audio, um, as well as perhaps not quite as important, but they still have an effect on us, just modern urban uh, stimulation, whether it's cars zooming by us all the time, airplanes, uh, sirens. Um, so, but, but more importantly, the, 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 the media and social media repeating, uh, we have instant access to stories that people have created worldwide. And, and because more eyeballs go to ones where there's danger, uh, threat, possibly blood, um, we're, the the forces not the forces the people who own the media want you know they're going to put those things up there more often because they want to sell more of their sponsors stuff or else or else collect collect more of your data <laughs> so um consequently we have repeated images of beatings car crashes plane crashes, wars. Now, these things are real. I'm not saying they don't happen, but they're not happening every minute, okay? And um, if if you're familiar with Dan- Daniel Kahneman, um, you know, the availability heuristic, if this stuff is available, it's going to feel like it's always, this is it. This is my world. This is always happening. And this is these are the systems that surround us in the 21st century where it, we need to have a constant cognitive energy reminding us that, sure, there's bad stuff around, but it's not happening every second and it's not happening in my front yard um, necessarily, right? Um, and, and that... Uh, the world is a dangerous place, but it's it's not immediately dangerous to me right now. The way media will have us feel that it is, and um, and you know, again, this comes from my my work on tabloid shows. You know, uh, <laughs> this is where they sell more sponsors' products, accidents. Uh, star sensationalist stories, who's sleeping with who, um, all the stuff which gets overblown with incredible importance and you lose perspective as to, okay, something is kind of important because it's happening in my town, but something is not really a threat to me because it's across the world. And, ha- you know, I'm, I'm not saying to ignore things that are global, but to put them in perspective, to look at the systems that are selling them to us, that are showing them to us. And, and, um, and so, yeah. And so then, as you said, we, we start to ruminate on them. We see the, we see a story is repeated to us about something that 
perhaps our beliefs are sympathetic to, and as it's repeated and as we say it to ourselves, it becomes granite hard truth. And in fact, no, it's just a story. It's a story based on maybe some real events, but the real events have been overblown. They've been shown 10,000 more times than they're actually occurring in front of you. So, so, uh, so yeah, does that <laughs> yeah. address what you're talking about? No, no. Yeah, I think it does. And, and it, it really does highlight again, the importance of philosophy because, you know, you have to be able to think for yourself to know where to draw the line, right? Okay. Like you said, you, you don't want to just live with your, your head in the sand and not say, admit that anything's going on or that anything bad's happening. Um, but also you have to be able to look at the things that are happening and realize what's within your locus of control and what's not, what is directly harmful to you and what's not. And then on top of that, and I think what society and the world as a whole is struggling with is where to accept authoritative information from, you know? And I think that that's where a real struggle is happening. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's like you said, the human brain, you know, we like to think that we're so advanced, but really we do get fooled by the simplest things. And there's a lot of emotional content that, uh, that, that changes our stories, right? I heard somebody say the other day, there's nothing less real than a Real Housewives of Wherever episode, right? <laughs> right. Reality, reality TV, right? There's nothing farther from reality than reality TV. That's right. Um, but we watch it, and then you you get your brain tricked into thinking that this is how the Kardashians live, or this is how whoever does what, and that's it's just not the case. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the stories that we tell ourselves, and even in smaller ways, you know, I was on a, I was a guest on somebody else's podcast a while back, and they were asking me about the process I use to write albums for music, right? And um, it's like you were saying, we're with modern technology, we're inundated with music, right? I hear music all day, every day. So I, what I was telling the host was when I go to write an album, the first thing I do is for about two weeks beforehand, I stop listening to any music, right? Because you already have all of that in your head. You already have all of that information, all of those stories that other people have told, all the practice that you've done, all of that's already there. You need some time with your thoughts in order to let things start connecting in ways that they can't if there's this constant background noise that's always stopping you from having these deeper connecting thoughts. Right, right. That, that sounds, it's actually similar to sort of a meditation. Um, uh, the idea of separating from the onslaught of thoughts, in your case, the onslaught of music, because there's plenty of it around, um, to just being with what is within you and what percolates up, right? Not yes. it's, a, it's an imperfect metaphor, but, but it's a practice. And, and it sounds like as you prepare to write music, um, it's, it's a practice that's valuable to you um, as as we prepare to walk out into the world, it's important to pay attention to our own viscera to know how the systems around us are affecting us. Um, because your viscera will tell you if it feels dangerous. Um, and, and your viscera will tell you if it feels dangerous, even if it isn't, as you watch some video on TikTok over and over and over. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, so yeah, uh, it's a good practice. Um, 
it, it takes it takes a certain amount of cognitive energy. This is perhaps part of the blessing of self-aware consciousness that we can channel cognitive energy to step back from the systems um, and to to be able to think about your thinking. I'm not just saying paying at lip service, but to even just imagine, here are all my thoughts and I'm going to step back from them. Some some metaphoric image that works for you, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, here are the thoughts going on in my head, they're coming out of my head like tubes. That's a metaphor. What? How can you step back from your thoughts? How can you step back from the systems that are affecting your thoughts? Um, we have the blessing of being able to focus our, our awareness on stuff like this. Now, our thoughts may in, intrude from time to time, but we can still bring that focus back. Um, and so uh, thinking about thinking, thinking about systems that are affecting you, paying attention to your senses, your viscera, uh, how systems are affecting you, um, I think in most cases will help people bring more balance to their lives. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how thoughts themselves can breed a lot of anxiety and a lot of, um, almost paralysis, but thinking about the thoughts, right. Being able to, to give them some perspective, um, being able to sort of, you know, you can never occupy an objective stance, but just being able to, to provide some perspective to where you are, you know, and, and, and understand that, well, maybe the way I was seeing things isn't the way that it actually is, right? Maybe it's not as dangerous or it's not as real or it's not, you know, maybe there's just something. And that little bit of leeway is enough that can allow you to, to interact with other people, right? Well, maybe what they're saying or what they're believing isn't all wrong, you know? It, and I, what I found is when I'm interacting with people who have beliefs that are, that are wildly different from me, if, if you just ask, why do you think that genuinely, right? Not as an accusation, but just, genuine, okay, so why, why do you think that? And let them talk about why they think it. And then ask questions that are interesting about it and let them go on. Then lots of times, after two or three times of, of, of asking an interesting question, you can then point out a flaw in the thinking. And they're very accepting of changing their opinion at that point because you've demonstrated that the position that they held has some validity and that you are interested in having a, a serious dialogue, right? But you have to at least give that initial, you have to give it a chance initially, right? You have to say, maybe I don't know everything. <laughs> maybe somebody else knows something and they can share it with me, right? But it's hard to start from that point if you never step back from your own thoughts. Right, right. And you know, a lot of what you just said um, is is discussed by John Gottman, the noted uh, marriage uh, interventionist, him and his wife. Um, you know, Gottman talks about uh, how when couples uh, disagree, or not, it, and it's not just even only couples, it can be friends, it can be family members, it can be business partners, when people disagree, but you can see it's most crucial with couples, because couples um, are very vulnerable with each other. So when couples disagree, how can one 
person say to the other one, um, look, I, I don't agree with what you're saying, but I'm really curious to know why you see it that way, right? Um, is a much more validating thing to say than you're full of it. <laughs> you know, you're full of it. I just dismiss what you have to say. Um, that's a surefire way to become in emotionally unsafe to your partner, right? Yeah. And, and as you're talking about, if you're talking to somebody with divergent beliefs from yours, to validate them, to say, uh, you know, I, I don't see it that way, but I'm really curious to know why you do, if you can. And, and then that might open the door with, um, okay, so this point that you made, I don't, I don't agree with it. Um, but, uh, tell me why you think it works and you can, you can eventually build a dialogue. Um, uh, that being said, uh, yeah, I, I can pretend that, uh, with politically divergent beliefs that works for me, but I'd be lying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, my, it's much easier to do it on a personal level with friends, yeah. business partners, um, my wife, um, to, to, to try and take a validating stance. Um, it, it's harder, it's harder for me to do personally, um, with, uh, people with wildly divergent beliefs that I just can't wrap myself around. And again, I don't, I don't go out of my way to invalidate. I don't go out of my way to say that's to dismiss and say, not true, walking away. Um, uh, but I, I know my own limitations also. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll postulate something here and I'll see if you agree with it or not. I think when it comes to politics, there's a couple of things that play into why that might be the case. And I think one is that politics um, tends to address you know, almost every main issue that we face in life, right? There's, a, you know, there's your, your freedoms and your health and your access to resources. All of these things are governed by politics. So I think that's one level that causes people to be very defensive of their, of their political beliefs. I think another level of it is the, the environment that we're in right now. Um, I think that you know, if think back to, you know, the nineties or, you, you know, even earlier than that, you might've had some discussion. Um, but I think the more polarized things get, the more, um, it's almost as if the more polarized things get, the more you can add on to a position that people might not necessarily believe. Right. So let's say I'm, I'm a hard right Republican, right? Let's say that I have a few issues that, that are sort of my core issues, um, and so I stick with the Republicans. But now as things get more polarized, so the Democrats go farther this way, and they're trying to take this one thing that I have a lot that I really want. Now the, the Republicans recognize that, and they say, okay, well, now we're going to add on these things and these things and these things as our stance. And you might not really care about those things, but you really care about losing the few things that the other side has. And this goes vice versa too, either, either direction. So that the more polarized you get, you might not necessarily care about all the issues, or you might not necessarily care about them to the extent that the, the party line does. But you look at it and you say, well, when I look at the other side, what they're trying to do now is so far outside of what I want. 
that I can't engage with it. Do you think that that is sort of an accurate representation of it? Or Yeah, well, I think for me personally, that is, uh, uh, that's so far out of away from what I believe that I can't engage with it. And um, it's interesting. The, you know, I, I kind of grew up with, uh, in this starry-eyed, I caught the end of the hippie movement, you know. Um, and I had this really inaccurate belief that things were just going to keep getting more progressively better. And I mean progressively, as in progressively better. Um, and so to see the great uh, steps backwards, uh, I would interpret it anyway, um, uh, that that have sort of crashed over us um, has really uh, has really kind of knocked knocked me way way afield like it's like i i can't i i can't sign on to these beliefs you know um and so so at, but at the same time i'm i have enough training to know i'm not going to go attacking people for them um it, this kind of leads us back into uh the, the 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 cognitive distortions thing which i think is at the root of how a lot of our beliefs come about we see someone in the media or we are talking to someone and we uh we do an overgeneralization we 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 th i know what he's thinking we say to ourselves i know what he's thinking no in fact you don't know what he's thinking you see his behavior yes you see what he's saying but you don't know what's inside his head no one can get into anybody else's head so we can we can make judgments on behavior. Um, similarly, uh, I know what's going to happen in the future if this keeps going this way. I'm certain I know what's going to happen in the future. Again, I would say no one knows what's going to happen in the future. Things are prone to change all the time. Um, and so these kind of stories we tell ourselves. I know what he's thinking. I know what's going to happen. Um, it's important to step back from it and just in the moment say, no, I don't. I, I see how he's behaving and I don't like it, but I don't know what he's thinking. I, I see how things have happened in the past. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go this way this time, right? Um, so, um, to again, to get distance from the stories that we tell ourselves. Um, and that work us up into a lather, right? Uh, you know, there's people out there. <laughs> I, I don't want to mention parties one way or another. <laughs> there's people out there that really, you know, upset me. And I see other people upset with them. And I see all these other people saying, I know what he's thinking. No, you don't. You <laughs> just see how he's behaving, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so um, anyway. Yeah, uh, and there's... You know, there's a lot of psychological studies that demonstrate we're very bad uh, predictors of the future. Right. Um, right. And there's also a lot of psychological research that shows, um, you know, using a lot of absolutist language, I know, or, you know, always, never, these sorts of things yep. are generally, you know, have bad outcomes. 
Um, and I think that's so, partly that's partly what led us to the conundrum we're in. So we have we have the onslaught of social media, which you know provides the echo chambers, along with our own proclivity for absolutist, uh, you know, uh, all or nothing. You're with me or against me type thinking. So, do you think that the challenges our system, our developmental systems face today, are largely positive growth pains or negative maladaptive processes? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I understand your question, Joel. <laughs> so when we look at these issues that we're having, right. And I, you know, I think that you can see they've, they're 21st century issues, right. With sure. increases in media and social media and, and political polarization, these things that, that continue to be the, the problems of our day and, and seem to be getting worse. Do you think that they're, positive growth pains? Do you think these technological uh, tools are going to help uh, the human race progress in the future? Or do you think that really the way that they're being used are, are maladaptive um, things that we need to find a way to temper? Yeah. Um, again, I don't, want, I don't want to predict the future. I have several colleagues that predict the future. And um, I have a lot of respect for them in certain ways. But uh, I, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't predict things change on a dime like that. And you don't, you can't, you can't predict that. But, um, one, if you look in history, back in history, you can see that we have come up with collaborative, um, societal or even outlying inventions that society now all has that have greatly increased our, uh, our, our ability to be comfortable in life, you know, given middle class, you know, lifestyles to many, many more people than were in the last century, the century. And so, um, but we, once we latch on to an a new idea that seems to be fabulous, we to become blind to where it may have negative attributes. Um, and this goes way back in history, you know, uh, wiping out the large land mammals whenever humans came in. They, for the moment, were hungry, we're going to eat them. <laughs> um, without a thought of, uh, you know, they're all going to be gone someday. Then what are we going to do? Um, we, we, uh, package all kinds of stuff in plastic now without a thought to the downside of the uh, of the poisons and the obesogens uh, that that th come from uh, and perhaps the even Im impediments to to reproduction that come from past uh, plastic uh, degrading in the oceans and getting into the food chain so um, what I'm hoping is that, we develop an ability to say yes these inventions that we have collaboratively collaboratively adopted are wonderful things but we need to collaboratively collaboratively also say they may have downsides and we need to address these that we want to address these downsides um, and uh, that we become effective at that 
as uh, pro-social creatures walking the earth. Um, I think that will be necessary. Um, short of some other great invention that steers us that way <laughs> without us having to put cognitive energy into it. Uh, you know, people rely, people say, oh, technology is going to get out of, get us out of this fix. I hope so, but I wouldn't plan on it. You know, <laughs> um, I, I think we need to collectively, I hate to use the word need. We want to collectively join together and say, yeah, some of this isn't working too well. And let's, let's take evasive action. Uh, yeah. So I guess, I guess that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, like you said, uh, you go back and, and, and Plato thought that writing would be the end of, of thought because sure. then you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to worry, you know, you wouldn't have to memorize anything. And then of course, you know, we have uh, television and, and the internet and now we're into social media where, um, people have always, you know, there's always been people that have decried the increase of technology is the end of the world. Um, but then at the same time, um, I, I read a great book called Power Trip by um, a, a guy who documents the history of human uses of energy. And a, a really good line was, you, you know, yesterday's solution is tomorrow's problem, right? You know, and, and the, the land animals was a great, great demonstration. The one they use in the book is forest, right? We deforested a lot of the planet, heating our homes and cooking our foods. And then we found coal. And then coal was a much more dense energy resource and much cleaner burning. And then coal had its own problems. And we found oil. And oil is much cleaner and much more energy dense. Now oil has its own problems, right? There's, there's not going to be this um, overarching thing that's going to solve all our problems. There's always going to be a need for continual progression, um, you know, continual innovation, but most importantly, the ability to review and reflect on the things that, like you said, aren't working and the identification that those things are causing problems and need to change. And that's, that's an issue we're seeing with climate change, right? Is this, there's Absolutely. some people that want to close their eyes to the fact that oil is, is having a detrimental impact on the, on the environment. But right. all right. So we're running short on time, which is unfortunate because I feel like we have so much that, that we could talk, continue to talk about, but before we go, um, just give the listeners, uh, let them know about your book again. Let them know what you want them to check out, and uh, we'll go from there. Well, thanks, Joel. So the book is Stop Breaking Down, The Secret to Avoiding Overwhelming Crack Up. You can access it off my website, kentw.net. Uh, it, it will in include discussions about pretty much everything Joel and I have been talking about today and some other things. Um that I, I wish we had more time to get into now, but uh, because this has been a very stimulating conversation. All right. Thanks for being on the show. And until next time, keep pondering.